Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. My name is Tom Dick, and I'm the pastor of resource development here at Southland. It's a weird title. I just write a lot and, and get to teach a lot, and that's, uh, it's one of my favorite things to do is write and teach. So we, I have a good time doing my job. And uh, this morning, I'm going to be bringing a message, and I thought long and hard about it. And uh, I think it's maybe one of the, the most hopeful messages I've preached in a long time. I felt hope as I was working through it. And I think it's going to be hopeful not only to people who are parents, but also to those of you who are uh, post, um, you know, kids in your household, although you're still parents, or maybe you are single, or maybe you are pre-child and you're, you're waiting for that first child. I think that we can all be encouraged here this morning. And uh, now I'm going to be finishing off a Southland mini-series that, uh, that Chris Dirksen started. And actually, it is a real mini-series. It could almost be like a Southland nano-series, because we preach so long on everything. But we know that we have good parents. You only need three weeks to get it right. So <clears throat> I will be wrapping up a message series called The Renewed Family. Now, before I get into it, I want to just uh, refresh you on why we called it The Renewed Family. There were a few reasons that we named it this. The first is that uh, the, the name we were originally going to go with was deemed inappropriate. So we went with this one. And uh, I also wanted to do something else. I wanted to promote this new website that we have for parents. And it's called therenewedfamily.com. And if you haven't been there, you need to check it out. We have tons of articles by different staff. And the people who have been there have been very blessed by what has been written there. So if you're a parent or not a parent, go there, see what we're saying. And... Uh, what we try to do there is we want to help you to bring church renewal principles that you hear so much about into your family. And that's really why we're teaching this message series as well. Because we are about church renewal. And you've heard Pastor Ray say it many times. If we don't have renewed individuals, we don't have a renewed church. But I would say that also applies to the family then. If we don't have renewed uh, individuals in the church, we, well, we should have renewed families as well. And our families should reflect that. But there's a problem with that. Because the majority of us who learn about these things are adults. And how do you translate renewal principles to a 10-year-old or a 7-year-old? It's very challenging. Um, for example, you know, you go on a set-free retreat and you learn about generational sins. Like, how on earth do you teach your children about generational sins? Are they, it's kind of like if they were to confess generational sins, since they're confessing your sins on your behalf, Right? And so that's weird, right? And yet, on Set Free, when they're there as a middle school group, and they just had a weekend uh, recently, um, they learn about generational sins. And you know, par parents really feel the pressure. They do. We hear it all the time. My kids don't like to do devotions. My kids fight coming to church. My kids can't hear God, and they aren't even trying anymore. My kids have questions, heaven forbid, right, about God. And they're the same questions that you often have, and you don't know how to answer. And then you start to panic. What if you don't have what it takes? What if they don't choose Jesus? What if you'll be held accountable for the, like the veritable Chernobyl that is your family? I have good news for you. And I have something to tell you today that's more than a theory, and it's more than an educated guess. If you as a parent are pursuing Jesus and are open to his leading, I can almost guarantee you that renewal is already taking place in your family. It's already taking place. In fact, 
In fact, it's been happening for a while to the parents who love Jesus. Think about it this way. One of the renewal practices is confessing your sin. Now, does that mean that you didn't confess your sin before you knew that it was a renewal practice? No, of course you did. And you taught your kids that they had to confess their sins and apologize and, and seek forgiveness and, and that sort of thing between their brothers and uh, between their sisters and brothers and parents and all that. And you think, well, yeah, but I need to force my kids to apologize. That can't be success. That doesn't look, that's not what renewal looks like in a family. And I want to tell you something. It might not look like renewal for a 14-year-old, but if you can force your three-year-old to apologize, that's actually success. And Chris Dirksen did a great job last week of defining a whole bunch of different ways that we can define success and progress. You know, I think it's just human nature that when we see a list of things to do, we make wild assumptions about what they should actually look like in our families. And then we act as if, if we don't get the whole list right, right off the bat, that the whole list is a write-off. Don't we do that? We can't get one thing quite right, and so ugh, there goes the whole list. It doesn't work anyways. But this misses the point. The renewal practices are practice. They're practice. They're disciplines, which, as Chris taught us last month, are intended to build spiritual muscles. They're not an end unto themselves. The list isn't a to-do list. It's not a report card. It's a progress report. And if you learn to apply these principles to your life, you'll find that the junk that keeps you away from Jesus is eventually removed and you grow closer to him. Many of you know this, and some of you have even experienced it, but there remain these pernicious lies called competition and, you know, uh, competition and performance. And Christian parents, even Southland parents, sometimes fall into this trap. They sometimes use the list as a, as a thing to compare themselves to other families. And the truth is, we assume that spiritually healthy families will all look the same. And you know what? That's just plain crazy. It's crazy. When I first came to Southland, and I'm going to tell lots of stories today. When I first came to Southland, um, Tara and I freaked out. Uh, because, well, for a whole bunch of reasons. But there was one reason in particular that actually almost kept us from accepting the job in 2006. And it was this. At the time, there were a bunch of staff that had boarders. They had people living with them. They would take in, you know, uh, people who needed it, and they were helping them out. And Tara and I walked away, and we said, oh, my goodness. Is this an expectation of staff, that we're now going to have people living in our house? And of course it wasn't an expectation. It wasn't even an unstated expectation. It was an assumption we made that if other people are doing this, that we need to as well. And you know what? Of the three people in question that we saw, it was Chris Dirksen, Stefan, although he wasn't on staff yet. Chris Dirksen, Stefan, and Donovan. Of those three, Donovan still runs a commune. <laughs> and Stefan... Uh, gave up uh, taking people into his house for the sake of his family, and Chris Dirksen stopped taking people into his house for the sake of the boarders. Yeah. <laughs> it was just healthier for everyone. You know what? Our family, my family, my wife and I, have a very specific calling, and it's to foster children. And we have six children right now, and hopefully we'll have six children in a year from now. And we love all of them, and we're advocates for fostering. We even feel that the spiritual health of our family depends on doing what God is asking us to do. But we never, ever, ever assume that the spiritual calling on our family is the same calling that's on your family. Never. If we had brought children into our home eight years ago, our marriage would never have survived. And I don't mean, that's not a lie. It would never have survived. 
So to do, you have to learn what your family is called to do. And you can't, you can't compare yourselves to other families. We, we want your children to experience renewal. We want your families to be different because of the light of Christ in them. But Jesus is not more available to the Reimer family because they have family devotions than he is to your family. He's just not more available to one than the other. So what am I going to touch on today? Well, I want to look at a case study. It's a case study of one family that turned out godly kids. And get this, it was before they even knew about the renewal practices. And by looking at this case study, a few things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to realize that imperfect parents have been around since the beginning of time, and so has a perfect God, and he does good work. You may pick up a few practical parenting tips to try on your kids. Perhaps you'll get some values to instill that will help your family grow spiritually. And finally, I want you to be forced to think back on your parenting as a child, as well as how um, you are parenting now, and celebrate all the good that is coming out of it and that did come out of it. So, I call today's message, pause for effect, the 10 things my parents did right. That's what it's called. The 10 things my parents did right. Now, why? You know, it really needed dramatic music, didn't it? It's like a big chord, the 10 things my parents did right. That would have made it much more epic and you would have all been swept away. I thought that was going to go better than it did. So (laughs) it's best, by the way, when things don't go as good as you thought, to point that out and to make a joke out of it anyways, so that you still feel good about yourself later. Okay, moving on. Now, why do I want to talk about my upbringing? There's several reasons. Number one, and by the way, my parents are coming to the second service, and they don't know I'm doing this, so don't tell them. My dad's going to cry like a baby through the whole thing. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Okay, but more often than not, my funny stories are about all the things my parents did wrong, okay? And I want to even the playing field today. I actually want to honor my parents. That's what I want to do. Now, I also have another reason. I've ascertained that I actually love Jesus, And I've even made sacrifices for him. And should you have seen me as a child, you would understand the miracle. And that's the point. My parents actually loved Jesus and loved us as a result. And we loved them and grew to love Jesus. And you know what? In my last church, I remember parents were complaining about their kids. And my parents came to a parents' night to hear how I was leading the parents' night, right? Because I was an adult by that chance, by that time. And and my mom said, if any of you um, need encouragement that your kids are crazy, and off the line, come talk to me. <laughs> and I was sitting right, I'm like, Mom, really? She's like, give them my number. I will talk and encourage anybody in this room. <laughs> my parents loved Jesus. They were actually really good parents, and they're shooting one for four at least, because I'm one of four kids, and I turned out good. So what are some of their shining moments that made a lasting impression on me? Now, these are not in any particular order. Some of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. Some of them I'm just going to say and move on. But I want to give you my top ten list, and I want you to know that the first and the last ones are the most important and my favorites by far, bar none. Number one, my parents let me destroy my room. They let me destroy my room. Now, I didn't know as a child how remarkable this really was, but now that I have a house and kids of my own, This is remarkable, because I don't always let my kids destroy their room. What do I mean by this? I used to love this show called McGee and Me. Did you ever watch McGee and Me? I was inspired by McGee and Me. And in the opening credits of McGee and Me, he sets off this big, long chain reaction. Do you remember it? 
people my age, and at the end, like, ball bearings are rolling and marbles and things are whizzing and whirling, and then he sharpens a pencil, and it's beautiful. And I just, I loved it growing up. I just loved it. And so what I would do is I would put nails in my walls and eye hooks in the ceiling. I had booby traps so that if you open your door, my door, you know, teddy bears would swing down at your face. And I would lay in bed and I had pulleys from my bed so I can turn my light off and on from my bed. There were so many strings and ropes in my room that when my opa came over to sleep, I had to clean it all up or he would trip. I, I put tape on the floor so I could find my way to the washroom at night. I mean, I was weird. <laughs> I was an inventor. The other thing I did was I painted my walls. Now, I was an artist. My parents put me in art class. I, I mean, you, you paint your walls if you're an artist. I remember one time, I was probably maybe 13, and my mom walked into my room and I was painting a mural. I was painting piranhas on my wall. And they were, by the way, they turned out amazing. They were awesome piranhas, very realistic. And uh, my mom walks in and she stops. Oh, hey, mom, you are painting your wall. <laughs> well, yeah. They look good. And she left. And that was beautiful. And by the time I moved out, I had a massive tree that I painted on wall, one wall with a hand coming down from heaven, which made no sense. And uh, I had airbrushed a floating island, which my mom hated. But you know what's interesting? My parents, when they moved into their new house, she said she wished she could take the drywall with her out of my room. That's important. Why did this make such an impact on me? Because my parents made room for my uniqueness. And why is this important? Because I was not like my siblings. And when I say not like my siblings... I mean, I was nothing close to like my siblings. I was a strange child. My parents were going to have six kids, and then they had me and stopped. So that should give you an, an idea of what I was like. And I was weird from the day I was born. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out how can I explain this to my church family. And so I thought back to my favorite Dr. Zeus book. And I'm just going to read you a little bit. You might not have heard of it because it was, it was actually published after he died. It's called Hooray for Diffendoofer Day. And this will explain to you what, what I'm like. My teacher is Miss Bonkers. She's bouncy as a flea. I'm, certain, I'm not certain what she teaches, but I'm glad she teaches me. Look, look, she chirps. I'll show you how to tell a cactus from a cow. And then I shall instruct you why a hippo cannot hope to fly. She even teaches frogs to dance and pigs to put on underpants. One day she taught a duck to sing. Miss Bonkers teaches everything. Of all the teachers in our school, I like Miss Bonkers best. Our teachers are all different, but she's differenter than the rest. And friends, I was differenter than the rest. <laughs> I just was. And when you are differenter than the rest of the people around you, there is no shortage of people who like to point it out. And it's not always in an endearing way. It's often in an abusive way, and I was bullied tremendously. But my parents let me destroy my room because paint is cheap and pinholes can be patched. And I want you to understand how important this was to me as a child. The fact that they let me be me, even though I was different, had an incredible impact on my life with Jesus. Because I wanted to pursue Jesus as I was. So if I opened up my journal and drew a picture to Jesus instead of writing out a prayer... That was very important to me. If I hadn't been allowed to do this stuff at home, you know that I probably wouldn't have become a junior high pastor. 
And I was a junior high pastor for 13 years. No one can stand it for that long unless they're crazy. <laughs> I was crazy. My parents encouraged it. Do you know what the Lord says about this in 1 Corinthians 12? He says, For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also in Christ. But now God has placed each one of the parts in one body, just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Now there are many parts, yet, young, yet one body. Have you ever stood in front of the mirror after a shower and thought, huh, I wonder why, you know? <laughs> like, I know that in this body, there are people who are walking around who feel like a belly button or love handles. I know that. They do. They don't know why. When they look at themselves, God put them in this body and told them that they had a role to play. I felt like that. What a tragedy that people walk around feeling that they were made wrong. There's not one person in Sel who calls Southland their family who does not have a place in the family. There are no physical or mental limitations that preclude you from finding your place within our family. And parents... There is no physical or mental limitation that precludes your child from this family. Sometimes we have to get creative to find where that place is, but that's why they hire people like me, to get creative. And we find a place for your children and your colleagues who are a little bit different. That's the first thing. Number two, and by the way, these don't flow nicely. They're not an acronym. They just came to me as I was sitting here one day. So they're going to be a little bit disjointed. Number two, my parents taught me the virtue of generosity. Now, I have a little bit of confession time in my notes here. At one time, I thought we were poor. Now, we were not poor. Uh, my dad was a chicken farmer, and he had eggs. Like, not, not, not uh, broilers, but we, we raised chickens for eggs. And that was a good, that's actually still a good business to be in. And we were not poor, but I remember one time we went to the boat show. And at the boat show, we had, <clears throat> we had an old boat, and it was very old. And uh, I was trying to bug my dad to buy a new boat, and we found a whole bunch of different ones, and one that was even affordable. And he said, Tom, you, you know, I don't know if we can buy a boat this year. He says, the chickens just actually didn't do that well. And I went, oh my goodness, we're poor. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> oh, that's what an idiot of a child. Oh, you know, I had many material blessings growing up. I did. Far more, actually, than I can offer my children. But I also had a mother and a father who demonstrated generosity and who still do. And this is the thing, parents. It's not good enough to just be, to be generous. That's good for you, but it's not necessarily good for your kids if you don't tell them about it. Do you know that I knew, I knew growing up how much my dad gave to church? I knew. I used to look at that check and go, whoa. That was incredible to me. But he let me see because he wanted me to know. I remember one time he came home and he, from uh, Lloyd's Mechanical on 52 or 59 Highway, and that's where we got our car fixed. And he said, Tom, oh, man, I saw this family's van there. And this was a family that was going to uh, Providence College at the time. They had a lot of kids. They had six or seven or eight. By now they do. And they were, the dad was working through a degree and, and, putting, and feeding all these kids and renting a house. And, and uh, here their, their, you know, their 15-passenger van was in the shop again. And my dad said, Tom, I just know that they can't afford it. So I told Lloyd that whatever it comes to, just charge me and don't tell them who. 
And he told me that. And he wasn't doing it to brag. He was doing it to instill a value. I remember my dad wrestling. He was a farmer. He had other friends who were farmers, not as successful. And one time he, he loaned thousands of dollars to a friend who needed it very badly because the crops were terrible that year. And I remember years later him going to, coming to me and saying, Tom, what do I do? I still haven't gotten paid back. What do I do? I remember being, I was probably 15 or 14 at the time, and he was asking me what to do about a debt that was owed him. He said, Tom, you know, I don't actually need the money. It's just the principle of it. He should be paying me back, and I don't know how to, how to do this. He taught me the value of money. And do you know what? My parents are still doing it today. I hear stories from their church about how they still do it today. And they're maybe too fresh for me to, to, to talk about, but it's incredible how generous my parents were. I've never forgotten this about my parents. It, it shaped me as a child. And while Tara and I cannot be generous in the same way or possibly to the same extent as, as them, we can do something else. It says in James 1 verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And this we can do. So we take in orphans. And we don't need generosity to be limited to money. Parents, you need to teach your children, by example, the value of generosity. Number three, my parents demonstrated a strong devotional life. I have kind of a, a hard memory that I didn't like at the time about my dad. But as I've grown older, I've realized the incredible value of what I experienced. I remember one day he was doing devotions, and my dad always did devotions. I can remember where he sat in the playroom <clears throat> in the sun in the morning. He was always out in the barn first thing, then he'd come in for breakfast, then he would do devotions, and I would see him. And I remember one time he was sitting there, and I was kind of being obnoxious trying to get his attention. And I remember he didn't say anything. He just looked at me and he said, Tom. And the look to me said, Tom, what is so important that you're going to interrupt my devotion time with Jesus for? Now, I'm not saying there aren't times to allow your kids to interrupt your devotional time. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about that this week, and goodness knows, when my twins are crawling up my ankles, they're allowed to interrupt my devotion time. They're allowed. But here I was old enough to look uh, to know differently, and the, the look kind of stung a little bit. But as I thought back on it, I said, you know what? How incredible is that? My dad valued Jesus so much. He loved his time with Jesus. And you know what? I know where he got that from. I remember as a child, I used to, my grandparents lived on the same farm as us, and I remember sleeping over there for night one night, <clears throat> and I had been put to bed already on the high to bed up in the room, the best bed in the house, and I came down, and my grandparents were getting ready for bed, and I, and I just happened to glance into their room. And uh, I'll never forget, the, the, the lamps glowed orange in their room, sort of, and my opa, who was probably in his late 70s at the time, was on his knees praying beside his bed. And I tell you something. God set up that moment so that I could see why my dad loved Jesus so much. And it was because his dad loved Jesus so much. And we have a legacy of people who haven't been private about their devotions. And I'm so grateful for it. My oldest brother was a missionary. 
He's the one who taught me how to listen, listen to God's voice. He was seven years older than me. I remember he came back one summer. I was 16 years old. He showed me how to keep a prayer journal to write a letter to God and then get him to write one back. And you know what? It's amazing to hear my parents now regularly talking about what the Lord has showed them in dreams and visions and in their devotional time. They allowed, they were so humble in their walk with God that they allowed their oldest son to teach them how to hear his voice. It's incredible. You know, Paul often says to his disciples in his letters, he says, imitate me. But in one of his letters, he says why you should imitate me. And it says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. That's a critical thing. To imitate our parents as they imitate Christ. You know, perhaps mom and dad and Opa didn't realize it, but simply in having a devotional life, they were modeling a devotional life. And they were modeling Christ to me who spent many hours on his knees in seclusion in lonely places with his father. Number four. My parents sided with my teachers. You know, in Hebrews 12, verse 11, it says that discipline is harsh and it's not fun at the time, but there's a purpose in it. And you know... um, This kind of falls into that category. It wasn't fun at the time. When you're uh, um, entitled, exacerbated young man wishing that somebody would take his side and feeling that all the teachers in the world are against you. But I remember one time that I came home and I was just railing against one of my teachers. I mean, they were unfair, unfit for the job. I mean, they were morons. I wasn't learning anything. They didn't even like me, and I was a teacher's pet, you know? It was just ridiculous. And my dad just looked at me and said, "Uh, Tom, what your teacher told you today, she was right. No, 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 no. Dad, you weren't there. You don't... No, no, no. She was right. I remember it so distinctly. I said, Dad, had you been in that class today, you would know that I'm right and she's wrong. All of my 25 classmates know that. Why don't you? They said, well, you know, I don't really care what your classmates say. She was right. Because, he said, Tom, the teacher will always be right. Now, is that true? No, of course not. And I actually think the teacher was wrong that day. (laughs) As I recall it. (laughs) But this is the point. There is a principle that there is a chain of authority and that appropriate respect is due to an older person by virtue of their age and position. That's just, yeah, amen. You're old, so you deserve it. (laughs) Today... I kid you not, today we have parents telling their kids, their daughters, to rebel in the school and to throw a fit because they have their back. I'm not kidding. That happened. And that young lady who I'm talking about actually came to church here for a while and she, she, made, she wreaked havoc here too. Parents saying they're going to back up their children instead of backing up the, parent, uh, instead of backing up the teacher... Let it never be said of a Christian parent. There is a way to respect authority and still get children to know that they've been heard. There is a way to do it. There are clearly times that we have to talk to authority figures. I had to do that privately this year. My son doesn't know that. But there's a way to do it. And the education system is practically begging for disrespect and misbehavior. They're taking teachers and not even calling them teachers anymore. They're removing barriers so that people can learn better. That's not going to help anybody learn better. 
We need authority to learn better. I don't want to learn with somebody, one of my peers. I want to learn with somebody who knows something. You know, Jesus, Jesus was called teacher. And it was, a, it was a title of respect for him. He's still called teacher. So we need to understand this. I struggle with authority from time to time, Pastor Ray. <laughs> you know, well, that's natural that you sometimes fight against it in your heart. But authority is a biblical idea, and I'm grateful to parents that modeled the right hierarchy. Parents, support your teachers. They have an unbelievably hard job. Number five, my, ter- my parents taught me the value of a good work ethic. Now, this will be a point that my dad might burst out laughing because we had lots of disagreements about work ethic. You see, I was creative, so I found out better ways to do things, and he thought I was being lazy, but I was being clever. In fact, I was probably saving him money because I told him one time that if I would, he told me to, to dig a trench. It was probably 15, 20 feet long between grain bins to drain some water on the yard. I said, Dad, you know, if I just use the tractor to do it, I will be done in two hours maybe. If I do this by hand, it'll take me all day. Considering my wages, and even taking into account the amount of gas that I'm using, I'll bet you I'll save money if you let me do it with the tractor. And he went, Tom, your older brother only ever wants to do things by hand. Why can't you be more like him? Well, because Nathan's an idiot, and he doesn't think about these things. And we fought. But I still caught the value of work ethic. Now, dads, I need you to hear me on this. Moms, too, but I need to talk to the dads. A kid will gain a certain amount of respect for work by virtue of how hard you work. That's true. But they will gain a much better respect for it if you allow them to work beside you. And if you take them along, and if you let them use the chainsaw, and if you, you, know, you let them chop wood and close the blinds so their mom can't see, they actually learn work ethic then. It's going to cost you something. I tell you something I'll never forget. I, it was always my job during harvest. I had to um, haul grain. I drove the grain truck. It was terribly fun. It had air brakes, and we were not qualified to drive air brakes. And it was, it was crazy. And, and I remember one night, it was very dark. And if you're a farm, farmer, you'll know this. You, you, you have these million-watt lights set up all around your yard, and you can't see a, a blasted thing because it's just bright in your face, right? And, uh, and I backed, the, tra- I backed the, the grain truck into one of, like, I was blinded, <laughs> I'd like to think, uh, into the tractor. I went, oh, no. So I got out and I looked and I tried to find damage and there was just a tiny little line, a dent, right on the corner where it's very strong. I thought, great, dad never has to know. Pulled forward, backed up, started dumping my oats. And then in the shadows behind the bright light, I saw these things moving. What is that? And I realized that when I had bumped the tractor, I had knocked the auger past the top of the bin and it was dumping grain directly behind the bin onto the ground. (laughs) And my secret was out. (laughs) And I think that year, I think that year twice, I forgot to close the back of the grain truck. And I started driving, and the the grain, it was canola, it shifted, and the the back door popped open. And I dumped like half a load of, you know, ball-bearing canola onto the ground. Oh, probably thousands of dollars. And my dad's like, (laughs) you know, what can you do? What can you do? He let me work. He taught me how to drive tractor, and then he got mad at me for driving too fast. That's what you do as a dad. You set them up. 
And I started young. I started young. Oh, by the way, I just, I put this in my notes. My dad actually did that too. He one time was unloading grain with the, with the uh, combine and he forgot to turn the auger off and he put it back and he was harvesting and dumping on the, on the field right behind him. <laughs> and I was driving the tractor and it took me a bit to notice. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I just, you know, high gear in a tractor and I'm flying behind him, waving at him. <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> oh... I started gathering eggs with my mom before I was in school. I would sit on the front of her egg cart, and I'd pick out a few eggs. And you know what? I always got paid for it. In fact, even when I was a teenager and fought gathering eggs, I was still paid for it. In fact, my dad paid us better. He always told us, I will pay my kids better than the other hired hands because you are my kids. He valued us. Ah, oh, sorry if you work for my dad, but... <laughs> Let's be honest, he paid them six cents for every 30 eggs they picked, and he paid us six and a half cents. So it wasn't an enormous difference. <laughs> if I had to cut all the grass in one day, it was eight hours of work, of cutting grass. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, it says, In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. And I'm so glad that my parents taught me how to work. I'm so glad. Number six. This is very important. My parents explained their rules to me. Now, this might have been literally one of my mom's most shining moments as a parent, and I have never forgotten it, and I've always used it with my, with my children. <clears throat> when I was 17, I had a uh, fairly early curfew. Uh, it was... Uh, 10 o'clock during the week and 11 o'clock or maybe 11.30 on the weekends. And quite frankly, it saved me because I didn't like going out late at night anyways. And, and so it was good. Ah, oh, I got curfew, guys. See you later. You know? And, uh, but this one, I, this one time, I was dating Tara, or I liked Tara already at the time, and we were in high school, and she could stay out whenever she, whenever she wanted. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, she just stayed out. And I, I remember standing in the kitchen with my mom, the 17-year-old kid, and I said, Mom, like... Tara doesn't have a curfew. Why do I have a curfew? And my mom looked at me and she said, Tom, it's not about the curfew. We actually trust you. She says, it's just that your dad and I believe that if you learn to obey us in the small things, when God asks you to do big things, you'll be more likely to obey him. Brilliant! That's brilliant! You think those little rules you have set up around your home are like rules for the house? No, they're not. They're training for obedience to Christ. And my mom had the wisdom to let me in on the secret. Now, it took her 17 years. I have a lot of rules, but she did eventually. And they were very fair about their rules, always. But what a value I learned. And did you know that Jesus did the same thing? Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he was going back to the Father, he washed the feet of his disciples. It says in John 13, the reason he washed them. He said, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to, watch, wash, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that, should be, that you also should do just as I have done. Now, do you think this was really about foot washing? No, of course it wasn't. It wasn't like they needed accountability hygienically, you know. That's not what this was about. Jesus was showing them that there was a reason behind what he was doing. And my parents did that for, for me. 
What an incredible thing. And did you know that all of those disciples washed other people's feet? They, took, they did the ultimate act of sacrifice, of foot washing, by dying for the cause. All except for two. Number seven. That was a short one. My parents taught me that church was a priority. This was the deal. Church was on Sunday, youth was on Friday. And youth was my church. I remember going to dad one time, a couple times. I said, dad, I, I'm too sick to go to youth tonight. He says, are you barfing? Nope. Go. <laughs> and then if you did barf, he'd say, now don't you feel better? Now go. <laughs> you know? I remember there'd be, there'd be something going on church evening, you know, Sunday evening in church. You didn't do homework on Sundays. And you certainly didn't miss church to do homework. And I'd say, Dad, I can't go to the, you know, the thing at church tonight because I got this big project due. He says, what's it due on Friday? Yeah? Well, guess you're going to lose some marks then because you're going to church, son. You see, church is priority over homework. Always. And can I just tell you as a youth pastor, parents, can you please just make your kids go to church? Make them. They won't like it at the time. They might fight you a little bit. But actually, you're going to instill a value in them. And can I just say something else? Maybe go to church yourself. <laughs> Demonstrate that you love the church. Demonstrate that. I'm glad for a dad like that. You know, they're going to need this church when pressure is mounting from all sides, won't they? They're going to need a church. So it's better that they learn it now. Next, my parents taught me the value of hospitality. In Hebrews 13, it's a famous verse, verse 2. It says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Now, the first example that came to mind was Chris Puhatch, which is interesting because he's not an angel. <laughs> but my brother, my brother led Chris Puhatch to the Lord while they were in university, and they were quite a bit older than me. And uh, so after Chris became a Christian, I remember I was probably 16 at the time or something, and he came to my parents' house for lunch for months and months because my parents wanted to have this new believer into their home. And they knew that was critical. And, you know, I, I learned something. I didn't even realize it was different. My grandparents always let me bring friends over if I wanted to on Sunday for Sunday lunch. And my Oma aunts, my mom's mom, she was very old when I was born, so I didn't get to know her very well. They lived in Eltona, and I learned that uh, later on that she used to, if the, if, there's a, if the guys from the reserve were working through town or coming through town, the, the aboriginals, they could stop at her door, and they could knock on it, and they knew that she wouldn't invite them in, but she would always serve them lunch. She wouldn't invite them in because her husband was away working, but she would always serve them lunch. She always allowed the poor to come to her porch and serve them lunch. This one was interesting. I'd always heard about this guy named Saul when I was growing up. He was a, somebody, somebody who moved in with my grandparents after my dad left the house. Opened up a room, so my grandparents used it. And uh, I'd never, I never knew who he was. I'd never met him before. And it was Solomon Budala. And when he came first from India, when he moved here to Canada, my grandparents put him up for the first six months of his life. And in my first year of working here, uh, his son Mark became a youth leader for me and has been a youth leader for me ever since. And that's incredible. It's just incredible when I think about it. So my parents taught me the value of hospitality. Number nine, 
My parents taught me the paramount importance of honesty. I wasn't much of a liar. I was much better at avoiding the truth. But occasionally I did lie. One time I lied for a stupid reason. I don't even know why I lied. I was at my neighbor's house. I was waiting for her to come out from dinner. And I was walking on the teeter-totter. I think that's how it went. And I somehow fell off the teeter-totter and got a massive scrape. Like I was in terrible pain. Big bruise. And uh, I went inside and I said, I have to go home because I jumped off the swing and I hurt myself. I don't know why I said that. Why would you say that? It's just as stupid to jump off a swing and hurt yourself as fall off a teeter-totter. But I, was, I maybe thought that I wasn't supposed to do that. I don't know. So I lied to Uncle Eric and that was dumb because they were eating supper at the back window watching me fall off the teeter-totter. <laughs> so they told my parents, Tom lied to us. And my mom cornered me in the kitchen. Why would you lie about that? And I didn't know. <laughs> There was another time that I didn't lie. I had consequences. I can't remember what they were, but they were probably bad. One time I hit our, uh, I hit our pastor's daughter with a snowmobile in anger. <laughs> she was best friends with my sister, and they saw me snowmobiling, and so they waved me over, and they're like, hey, Tom, can you give us a ride back to the farmyard? I said, sure, jump on. No, no, Mary says, I'm driving. Okay, so she drives. Then it was me, Janice. No, it was uh, Mary, Janice, and then me. And I kind of had to sort of sit right on the back. And she took off. I fell off. <laughs> they didn't stop for me. They just kept going. What kind of a sister is that? So I figured I would scare them. They, were, uh, they went down to the... We live on the Red River, and they have a huge dike, and they were tubing down it. And they were lying on their tubes at the bottom. I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go fast at them, and then I'm going to swerve right at the last minute. That'll teach them. You can't swerve a snowmobile on ice. <clears throat> I didn't swerve. I hit her. I hit Janice, my pastor's daughter. And I had an old John Deere skidoo, and it had one of those open metal blocks, you know, on the hood, and that's where her head hit. And I knew she grabbed her head and was laying in the snow, and I knew I was in trouble when blood trickled down her ear. So I knew I had, a, I had a choice to make. I could either let the John Deere take me as far as it would <laughs> towards River or Grand Forks. I wasn't sure which way to go. Or I could jump on that thing and beat her home and tell my dad before she did. And that's what I did. And my dad, <laughs> you know, he wants to reward you for being honest, but he's like, I just, oh, <laughs> you know. As Chris Dirksen famously once said, I want to rip off your arm and beat you with the wet end. <laughs> Remember that? That was a moment of inspiration. <laughs> I got a lesser punishment because of it. Lying was a guaranteed spanking. Why? Because without the truth, you have nothing. Nothing. And I actually believe, you know that I, I, I have trouble, I, I joke around with my kids, and sometimes they call me for lying, I say, no, that was a joke. It's different. But you know what? I've, I can't think of times that I lie. I don't lie. I know adults who can't stop lying. I don't lie. I actually think that this thing of truth has plagued me so much that it actually that was why it became one of my lifelong pursuits. This is why my heart was so compelled to study apologetics because I understood that truth was everything and if we have a God who lies, how can we know him? And so if there's truth to be found, I needed to find it. And I believe that's because my parents taught me the value of truth. 
It says that God doesn't lie in the, in the scriptures. It says, Numbers 23, 19. It says in a couple places, God is not a man who lies or a son, who changes, a son of man who changes his mind. Does he act, uh, speak and not act, promise and not fulfill? You see, God, if he lied, you would never know who he was. If you caught God in even one lie, and then you read that God is love, you'd say, how do I know? Right? And if I go home and I tell my parents one lie, I wasn't where I said I was, the next time I tried to tell them that, they'd say, but how do I know? You know, truth has never been more neglected than it is today. I believe that. I don't know if that's true or not. I just, I'm living today, so it feels like it. It's completely neglected. When your kids go out of this church and out of this community and into, the, into their schools and certainly into the universities and into the workplace, they are going to be bombarded with a witch's brew of worldviews. Crazy. And they will not be able to stand unless they understand the value of truth. You, you might think that Lying is just about keeping things good between you and your kids. It's not only about that. It's actually about teaching them about God. That's what it's about. You have to teach them to think properly about truth, and they won't, they won't even begin to think about it if they don't know how to tell the truth. And, and I'm going to just take a minute here. I'm going to do a plug. If you want to help your kids think properly about truth, I'm going to teach a course on apologetics again starting in March. It's called Confident Christianity. It's not going to be geared for kids, but you should bring your kids to it. The sign-up is online now. It's going to be uh, uh, three weekends in a row on Saturday morning. We need to help our kids think about truth. We need to make sure that we are not the adults who are demonstrating dishonesty to them. It's terrible. To, to, to demonstrate dishonesty to your kids. Be careful that your life is honest, that you don't come to church and act a certain way and then act a different way at home because that's dishonest. And they cannot think properly about truth if they're not thinking properly about honesty. Number 10, last one. My parents built their house on the farm. That's very important. Now, I, I had to figure out a way to make it about my parents because it's actually not. It's about my grandparents. But see, because they built their house on the farm, I got to live just a door down from my grandparents. And I could run there any time of the day or night. I would go help grandma weed her garden, and then my mom would get mad because it's more fun to weed grandma's garden than my garden, you know? <laughs> I would go, I often, I often was alone in the evenings, and I'd go for a walk in the bush, and I'd find deer and skunks and foxes, and then I'd stop in for 20 minutes before I'd go home, and I'd say, Grandma, guess what? I saw 45 deer today. It was incredible. And grandma and grandpa would be sitting reading in the living room. They'd always have time for me. What an incredible thing for a child to have. But there was something else I learned from my grandparents. My grandma demonstrated forgiveness like nobody I've ever met in my life. There have been so many times that we have had a perfectly good, enjoyable family gathering, and grandma will call to apologize for something. She'll say, Tom, when I said something, did that offend you? Grandma, you're hilarious. Like, you could hardly offend me. I loved her, you know? She, she was so worried about offending people that this is how she would kiss you. Because it's offensive to get spit on your cheek. I mean, the woman was the least 
offensive person in the history of the world. She was so godly. But she always asked for forgiveness. Her husband was the same way, my opa. Um, <clears throat> he, he would keep short accounts. In fact, at his funeral, that's what they talked about. Opa kept short accounts. Did you know that every Sunday morning he read Psalm 90 without fail? Read Psalm 90. Let me read a little bit for you. And then you'll understand why he kept such short accounts. He, it says, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world. From eternity to eternity, you are God. <clears throat> Pardon me. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. For in your sight a thousand years are like the yesterday that passes by like a few hours in the night. I have to read lots of it to get it, right? You end their lives, they sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows, but in the evening it withers and dries up. For we are constantly consumed by your anger, terrified of your wrath. For you have set our unjust ways before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we're strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. You see, there's an eternal perspective to forgiveness. It's probably the most critical perspective to have is the eternal perspective. And the reason that my grandpa lived with short accounts and my grandma asked for forgiveness is because they wanted to think about eternity and what eternity meant and not just what today meant. I went on a mission trip when I was 20 years old to Mexico, and we were having our debrief in Texas, just across the border. And that night, God met me in like one of the most powerful ways I've ever been met. Uh, my brother Sam was there. He was teaching a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, it was in front of this little church. Uh, and uh, he, he was worshiping. I was worshiping. It was just it was beautiful. I was like, oh, yeah, the Dick brothers in worship together. It was just weird, romantic idea, right? It's a weird child, remember? And, uh, and then Sam got on his knees to worship. I thought, oh, I'm going to copy him. So I got on my knees and worshiped. And then he got on his face and worshiped, and I should never have done it. Because as my face hit the carpet, the Lord convicted me of a sin that I had been carrying in my heart. And it was dark. It was unhappy. And um, I started to cry and cry and cry and cry. And I knew it was, really in it was very intense, because when I got up, there had been blood on the carpet, because my nose started bleeding. It was gross. And by the way, if you're ever going to be broken in your sin, at the front of the church is not the place to have it happen. <laughs> so you have to walk back. Everybody sees you. You're a mess. But there was a man I had met named Brad Hubert. And I said, Lord, if Brad is looking at me when I get up, if he's looking at me when I get up, I'm going to ask him to come out and I'm going to confess the sin to him. And then I said something dangerous. I said, but Lord, if he's not looking at me, I'm going to the washroom, I'm cleaning up, and I swear I'm taking this to my grave. And he was looking at me. And he followed me out onto the parking lot. It was night. It was hot. And I just literally collapsed in his arms. I was a 20-year-old in a mess. And I whispered in his ear what my sin was. And he just held me. And he said, Tom, I love you. God loves you. And then we started to do inner healing together. And we sat on that parking lot in the dark, in the heat. And he did inner healing with me. It was the first time I had ever done inner healing before. And do you know what God did to me in that, or did for me in that memory? It was the most incredible thing. The, 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 the sin was tied to a lie that I had believed about my parents. And I know exactly where it happened. It was at a kitchen table. I remember what was said, and it was very painful to me. 
And uh, it wasn't meant to be. It was a joke, and it was very painful. And, and, the, and the devil just planted such a strong lie in my heart right there. And as we were praying, uh, Brad asked Jesus to walk into this memory, and he did. And then Jesus took these words. They were coming out of my dad's mouth like, like notes on a page, and he took them, and he broke them over his knee. And then I thought Jesus would hug me, but he didn't. He never hugs me in these memories. He always goes to the person who's wronged me. And he put his hands on my dad's shoulder, and he said, Tom, your dad is only a human being. Now forgive him and grow up. Forgiveness is so critical. I tell people that was the best day of my life. The day that I allowed my parents to be human. It says in Matthew 6, you know it. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive you your wrongdoing. Do you know what I think? We're very good at tricking ourselves. We think that if we think the words, I forgive you, when a painful memory comes from our childhood, we actually think that we've done it. But our lives betray a deeper reality. And I understand how it goes. We walk around in a fog, weighed down by our own deficiencies and inadequacies. And as a parent, you really feel this, but lots of people feel this. We weigh down, we're weighed down by our inadequacies. And when you think about it, you can usually trace it back to the deficiencies and the inadequacies of your parents. Isn't that true? And I get it. Some of us come from good homes. Some of us come from good homes that were also godly. And some of us actually come from horrible homes that were dysfunctional and abusive. But you know what I find? That when we're in the muck and mire of life, we tend to blame someone else regardless of our upbringing. And many people carry silent resentment towards their parents, and it affects the rest of their life. Do you know what? Nothing heals the heart like gratitude. Nothing. Gratitude to God, but also gratitude for the gifts that our parents give us. You know, we need to all stop for a moment and acknowledge that our parents were human and that we are human, and that by definition means that there will be deficiencies in what they can accomplish and what we can accomplish. And if you're a parent, you know this. You feel it all the time. And you know what? So did your parents. They may still feel this way. And until we can let people be people and thank God that he is God, we will never find true joy. And this is the end of it. Chances are, if you carry resentment towards your parents, you also carry resentment towards God for placing you in that family. And do you know what? My God is not your dad. God is our Heavenly Father. And he is good all the time. The problem is that we are what he has to work with. So we need to take a moment to forgive our parents and apologize to God. I've thought really hard this week about what success looks like for raising children. And you know what? I'll be honest. I was, I'm very unsure. And every time I thought about it, you know, my heart got a little lump. It rose in my throat because I wonder if I'm getting it right or not. But I'm going to tell you something. If you do anything other than what God is asking you to do right now, you are falling into pride. Pride is comparing yourself to anyone except Jesus. So we need to stop looking at the family next to us and start asking the Lord what he wants to accomplish in our family. When I think of the person that I've become, the job that I have, the family I have, I have to be honest with you, no one saw that coming. I didn't see it coming. I wasn't groomed for it, but I was groomed to obey Jesus. 
When I look at that list of church renewal practices, you know what I think of? I remember the times when my parents somehow instilled those values in me. And wherever there are gaps, I can remember times where God stepped in and instilled the value for them. And do you know what? If you'll allow him, he fills them in for you as well. So I have a weekly challenge for you. This week, I want you to spend time reflecting on your childhood. Ask the Lord to reveal the good that he did in your life through your parents. And I don't care if they were rotten parents. Ask him for just one thing, just one thing that you can hold your parents in esteem for. Ask the Lord to reveal any unforgiveness in your heart towards your parents and deal with it. Consider, are you parenting out of faith or fear? Ask the Lord to show you the root of some of those deficiencies in your parenting. And I want to challenge you, and I really mean this. Go to the website, therenewedfamily.com. Sign up for the newsletter, because many staff are putting hard work into it. And especially consider going this afternoon, because there's going to be a post this afternoon that asks you to share what your parents got right. And I think that will be a blessing for all of us to see. So do this. Celebrate your parents. Thank God for the filling in of their deficiencies. Let them be human. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for my parents who loved you and who instilled godly values in my life and who loved me. And Jesus, I thank you that there are many things that we can laugh about now, but that there are many things, many things that I can take home to my family that have changed me incredibly, that you've used to change me. And I pray, Father, that for those of of these people who have difficult childhood memories, oh, Father, how I pray that you would begin to step in and help them so that they can live and walk in the light and the joy of knowing that you're their good father. Father, we need good families. We need strong families. So I pray that we would take this with the utmost seriousness and that our church would go stronger as our families grow stronger. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.